Welcome to the Ground Up Podcast. I'm Adam Bednar, the Daily Records Commercial Real Estate Report. When discussing Baltimore's struggles with crime, economic development, and high taxes, one possible solution mentioned from time to time is merging city government with a larger metro government of sorts. The Able Foundation recently released a new report packaged with two previously published studies examining how the Nashville, Indianapolis, and Louisville metropolitan areas fare after consolidating some level of government operations. This week, we speak with Jeff Walker, an independent researcher who compiled the report about his findings on the resulting population growth, economic development, and political consequences of merging city and county governments. Before we jump into that discussion, however, I want to talk about some commercial real estate news. Construction of the co-living space Wheelhouse in Federal Hill surpassed the halfway mark, and pre-leasing is slated to begin in May, according to 28 Walker, developer Mark Saperstein's firm. The five-story building is expected to be delivered this July. The property at 1110 through 1106 South Charles Street will consist of 29 apartments and 5,500 square feet of ground floor retail. Wheelhouse's apartments will range from small studios up to four bedrooms. The units will be as small as 400 square feet and as much as 1,200 square feet. Residents can also choose to rent a furnished or non-furnished apartment. Amenities include a priority brand bicycle for each apartment, housekeeping, and a service to help connect residents with potential roommates. Where was this when I was in my 20s? Seriously. More than 4,000 square feet of retail is or soon will be leased. Eatery, BRD, which currently operates a space in Seawall Developments, Our House in Remington, plans to open a second location at Wheelhouse. 28 Walker, in its announcement, also said it's in negotiations with a national franchise concept to take space. That leaves about 1,400 square feet for lease. Over on the Eastern Shore, KLNB Retail Investment Sales Group closed the sale of the 126,650 square foot Easton Marketplace Shopping Center for $13 million. Weiss Supermarket serves as the anchor tenant with Aaron's and Cato Fashions as the junior tenants. The property is located on more than 18 acres of land with five subdivided parcels, which include ground leases from McDonald's and Ruby Tuesdays. There's also an undeveloped pad totaling nearly an acre. Andy Stape and Vito Lupo of KLNB Investment Sales represented the seller Mirrors Properties LLC slash Easton Marketplace LLC in the deal with Rise Partners. KLNB Management will also provide property management. Baltimore was third in the nation in terms of growth in the number of wealthy renters, according to a recent study from website Rent Cafe. Renters with a household income of $150,000 or more are in fact now the city's fastest growing market segment over the last decade. Wealthy renters in Baltimore, according to Rent Cafe, make up 4.5% of the market. That's up from uh, 1% a decade ago. The national average is about 4.9%, so there's still a little room to play catch up there for Charm City. We reached out to Rent Cafe with some questions for researcher Florentina Sarak 
And uh, here's what she had to say. When trying to pinpoint the areas where the wealthy renters are located, we looked at cities specifically and did not focus on metro areas. It would, however, be interesting to see what the data shows on a metro level. At a city level, for instance, in the past 10 years, both Baltimore and Washington, D.C. are among the top 20 cities with the highest growth in wealthy renters. The number increased five times in Baltimore. This placed it third behind only Seattle and Charlotte, while the rate of increase was slightly lower in Washington, D.C. The number of wealthy renters there multiplied 3.5 times in the last 10 years. In the past decade or so, this wave of high earners entering the rental market has turned into the fastest growing renter segment in the U.S. This includes those who continue to rent even after their income increases to a point where they could buy. This newfound status has the potential of redirecting the rental housing market towards a demographic that up until now has been targeted specifically by the for sale market. The growing numbers of rich renters also helps us understand what changes may occur in demand. Higher incomes demand higher quality amenities and finishes or a significantly lower level of concessions. This trend also shows a change in the wealthy person's mindset concerning renting, which is now viewed as a lifestyle. Flexibility and comfort have become core factors in deciding where to live. With home ownership no longer the symbol of wealth and status that used to be before the recession, new apartments are increasingly catering to high-earning households. Invested in real estate should be at least aware of this shift in preferences among the wealthiest home seekers. Even top earners need to be aware that they're not alone in their decision to rent. Income level is a key demographic factor and the wealthy population is now an important player in the rental market not just on the home ownership front. High-income renters, much like high-income owners, look for desirable locations with leisure facilities, convenient transportation, and good infrastructure. With this particular segment, it's all about location and quality, so developers and industry suppliers are paying close attention in order to meet this demand head-on. For this study, we used the RD matrix for rent data spanning over the 10-year period between 2007 and 2017 and U.S. Census for income data to show the change in high-income renters year over year. We also used population estimates to determine the largest 30 cities in the U.S. The purpose was to find out where these wealthy renters live without going as far as to fit them in a demographic bracket. It's also important to point out that all locations highlighted in the study represent cities proper and do not include nearby counties or surrounding suburbs. We can only speculate as the reasons vary depending on how much housing prices have increased in each city as well as lifestyle preferences. Top earners who choose to rent in Washington and Baltimore are no exception. In Washington, where about 14% of renters earn $150,000 or more, we take into account the profession of those within this bracket. These are people who enjoy a dynamic professional life that requires traveling or relocation, so going for a rental makes sense here. A year-over-year -year increase in D.C. is not going to make a big difference because of the professional nature of the area. In Baltimore, the high-earning population that owns has doubled compared to those who rent. The net numbers are in favor of owning. 
19,000 homeowners to 5,700 renters, but the rate of increase in high-income renters has outpaced that of owners in the past decade. Renter-occupied households multiplied by five, whereas owner-occupied households within the same income bracket multiplied by 1.7. Now back to the major focus of this week's episode, the ABLE Foundation report Combining Forces, an ABLE inquiry into three local government consolidations and their results. The research found positives as a result of merging metro governments to various degrees in Nashville, Indianapolis, and Louisville. Economic development improved and populations generally grew compared to similar cities. Government efficiencies improved and in many cases, taxes actually decreased. Making something similar happen in Baltimore, however, won't be easy. Proposals and efforts to make these consolidations happen dated back in two of the three cases to the 1950s, and the Louisville merger only happened in 2003. In fact, the most efficient of these mergers in Indianapolis was the least lowercase democratic. In fact, it was accomplished as part of a power grab by Indiana Republicans to negate the strength of a Democratic Party stronghold. The report also found diminished minority political influence to be a very real consequence of these mergers, particularly in Nashville and in Indianapolis. At the end of the day, however, the report argues the concept's feasibility in the Baltimore region is at least worth investigating. Jeff Walker joined me by telephone on Sunday afternoon to chat about the findings in these studies, which can be found on the nonprofit's website, ABLE, that's A-B-E-L-L dot org. For the sake of listeners who may not have read the report, share with me the Cliff Notes version, if you will, of why the metro air of why metro areas merge. So generally speaking, um, the cities that have uh, successfully merged face um, challenges with economic development, declining population, and um, suburbanization, removing resources from that central city. Um, And cities take various approaches to try to address these problems. Um, One of the tools in the toolbox is is city-county consolidation. Um, Now, city-county consolidation is a quite broad term as these three cities um, show there's uh, varying levels of what consolidation actually means. So Indianapolis, for example, um, consolidated the city and county, but still have more than 50 different governmental and taxing structures uh, to this day. Um, while Louisville um, and Nashville had more more governmental merging, um, but still had some components that remained uh, remained somewhat separate. Uh, explain to us a little bit about the types of information you reviewed and how you drew conclusions regarding the successes and failures of these consolidations and mergers and their different variations. Sure. So um, with, with, with each city, I started with uh, sort of the historical story of uh, how, how the consolidation became an idea worth approaching, um, the political and community process that um, that was necessary uh, to to make this to make this happen, uh, and then what 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 approaches um, actually occurred in order to achieve consolidation. Um, each each city had a very different path to get there, uh, and ranging from Indianapolis going 
entirely through the legislative process. There was no referendum uh, among in the city or the county um, for approval of the of the merger. Um, while the other two cities, Nashville and Louisville, um, required affirmative uh, affirmative approvals from both the city and the county. Um, once the basic story of um, what happened and how uh, was was put together, um, then uh, at the end of assess, okay, did it work? Uh, and primarily, I was looking at uh, economic and population data uh, to get an idea. Um, for, okay, these cities have more jobs, but is that more than they would have had otherwise, um, which is a complicated question, but the approach that I took was to um, uh, assess, assess it in the context of peer cities. So cities that were um, in a similar region with similar economic structures and um, uh, similar challenges um, to, decide, to, to determine whether their job growth outpaced some of their some of their similar cities uh, and then beyond the economic and population data I also looked at um, government finances taxes um, and political uh, political representation um, so even if a city's economy is booming if it is booming at the expense of um, a, a minority population's political say um, is that really a good thing um, so all of those things taken together uh, kind of bring the. So all of those things together can suggest whether the merger was uh, a good for the city or not. Now, as you just noted, and it's also noted uh, in the report summary and in the report itself, the mergers in Nashville, Indianapolis, and Louisville they all took different paths to happening. Uh, but what were some of the common hurdles these consolidations needed to clear to become a reality? So all three cities, um, because of the unique nature of consolidating a city and county, all three cities did need some state-level approval um, through the legislative process. Um, in Tennessee's case, that included even a constitutional amendment that would allow um, the uh, divergent taxing structures that um, they thought was necessary uh, for merger. Um, so from a very structural standpoint, yeah, there were some, some laws that needed to be addressed. <laughs> and um, otherwise, uh, because Indianapolis didn't necessarily have to go to the people, um, they had a slightly different path. But um, in all three instances, um, the initial steps were primarily to focus on um, gaining the support of the political and business classes. Um, all three, all three merger efforts uh, were kind of spearheaded by um, established groups in the in the cities, um, with the support of the chambers of commerce and, and business leaders. And then for the for the two cities with referendum, uh, it was necessary to then uh, it was a much more political campaign. Um, and both Nashville and Louisville um, actually tried and failed to consolidate um, at least once before in in. Louisville's case, they had two different uh, merger votes in the 80s that both failed. Um, so there were lots of lessons from um, from the failed efforts in, in both those cities. Um, and most of it came down to uh, more of a grassroots campaign. Um, focusing primarily on the elite was sounds nice and you get a lot of support and uh, potential funding for these campaigns. But if you don't have the actual voters on board, then you're going to have a hard time. 
uh, winning that winning that ballot. What stood out to me from your research is that the combo of shrinking population, declining tax base, and concerns over economic development, uh, particularly in the urban centers, uh, were the major drivers in these mergers. Based on the information you reviewed, what do you think were the highest impact pressure points that moved the needle for these consolidations to happen? They all had somewhat different primary drivers. Um, Indianapolis, for example, was was very much uh, there was a big political push. Um, it was sold very, it was sold as an economic development push, um, but it was also a moment where Indianapolis, which had predominantly be, been controlled by, by Democrats, was now in the hands of Republicans, and they were able to um, kind of push through this merger to consolidate political power, um, which then had positive impacts from their perspective on um, on economic development and on shoring up some of um, some of the problems that they were seeing, like, like you mentioned. Um, Nashville's big push was really... Um, as, as the city was expanding, uh, the urban services that people come to expect living in a, living in a city um, didn't move out to the suburbs with the people. Uh, and so what kind of allowed them to, to make that change was um, the, the promise and, and effort to um, make the suburbs of Davidson County um, more more urban. Uh, and Louisville was, was much more... Um, but like you mentioned, uh, a story of economic development. Uh, and that was uh, really a, an effort that had been going on for 20 years at that point um, to try to unify the economic development voice so that you would stop having the, the city and county competing against each other to try to attract new new employers. And instead, they could merge their uh, their talent, their resources, and their, and their incentive base um, to... Uh, to, to work for the betterment of the, the broader region, um, and so that that message was um, was compelling to to a city where uh, the industrial base was declining, as most of the industrial bases of the country of over this era were. Um, to say this is our best best bet to um, continue to modernize our economy um, and push into more white collar uh, jobs. Reviewing the outcomes from the mergers. That was a very obvious benefit, at least in my reading, stemming from the stronger economic growth. How much of that can be attributed to actual results of mergers, such as you know eliminating competing economic development agencies, as opposed to say you know simply being in the right geography at the right time? Okay. Yeah, and that's that's definitely a point that is um, somewhat hard to unwind. I think that was the the goal of the. Um, of the Pierce City uh, comparison, um, and I think that, I said the the more the combined economic development or, or operations and the um, the psychological feel of being a more modern city, um, I think, was uh, an underrated but also hard to quantify um, advantage that that merger allowed. Um, when I was talking to someone uh, in, in Louisville about their merger, um, they made a point that it was exciting now that when you're out traveling for, for business and you put the weather channel on, the Louisville pops up on, on the map because it's a big enough city now. Um, and while that sounds somewhat silly, it, it definitely um, adds a lot of uh, civic pride and, 
um, makes the city itself um, appear more more appealing when you're looking at um, business relocations. Uh, but certainly, there are there are other aspects of um, economic growth and development that um, that could have still continued to to allow these cities to be more successful. Um, although, I, with Indianapolis in particular, the the merger allowed them to do a lot of uh, downtown redevelopment. There were um, dozens of projects that uh, were incentivized and were able to be built, um, and for a big part because the state laws allowed them to then to borrow more money to create those incentive packages to really push this new redevelopment, um, which which really modernized the, the city and made it more appealing to businesses. Yeah, that law that makes a lot of sense and talking about you know Louisville and being on the weather channel it's basically the same concept of a sports team being important and why cities cling to these sports teams and give them whatever they want because it's an indicator if you have them you are a down upon the map exactly and and the merger probably played a role in creating the um, the infrastructure necessary to lure the lure the coast to Indianapolis um, when with sports on your mind yeah, I wasn't going to touch that, but I'm sure I'm sure a lot of listeners are holding Indianapolis the Colts. Never get over that. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the more negative, I guess, impacts from the mergers, as I understood, is there was a relative weakening of some African American political power in these areas as a result of the mergers. How fair of an interpretation is that on my part? Um, I, I think that's that's absolutely uh, a, a serious downside um, to the way that these, that these mergers um, were were pl- these mergers played out. Um, African American representation before the mergers happened was definitely part of the conversation, um, and each city addressed it to, to varying degrees. Or in Indianapolis's case, sort of not at all, um, and it, it definitely caused um, caused caused the problem. Um, a lot of the a lot of the growth and economic success and the downtown redevelopment and economic development issues that um, were some of the successes of merger um, really went primarily to people who were already living in the suburbs were already part of the um, the wider business uh, business elite in in those communities um, and the African American representation at the city council and their their sway and and mayoral elections certainly played into um, the how how the the benefits of merger were distributed to the, to the various communities, um, and so I think it's it's important to see. I think Louisville probably saw the the least negative impact on African American representation, um, while they they certainly did see some. Um, but when that merger was designed, there was a lot more forethought put into okay, how do we maintain this, uh, the influence of this community that is uh, a significant minority of the population, um, and they designed their, their council districts um, to ensure that that representation would at least be significant, if not quite as much as it was prior to merger. The attention to a detail from a consolidation that happened in 2003, as opposed to one that happened in 1963, I guess being... Yep, uh, absolutely. And it's, it's also something that um, I, all of the mergers uh, went out of their way to not touch schools, uh, and but 
that was still in the 60s and early 70s was a big part of um, the suburbanization that was going on uh, in general. And uh, I think there were there were definitely supporters of merger that viewed the um, deterioration of African-American um, political power as a positive um, to ensure that those schools would continue to stay uh, as segregated as they were. Uh, but in in, Nash- in Louisville, because of the court-ordered integration of the city and county school districts, which occurred well before a merger took place, um, not only were schools not an issue in the merger discussion, they also weren't an issue really at all because it was already um, there was already busing going on. There was already um, there was already a more uh, more integrated school system. Something that's touched on in the report is the fact that the proposals in the three areas, all had support of popular political figures. It's impossible to quantify the importance of a popular political figure, uh, but is there any way to gauge the importance of such figures in these mergers happening? Um, I, I think that was definitely a, a huge component of it. Um, and I think you, you see it in kind of the counter with happening in the efforts that had failed and that have failed in other places. Um, where. Uh, and I think in each of these scenarios, the political leaders were of opposite parties as well. So they were able to take the partisanship and the um, and the my team versus your team aspect of it kind of out of it, um, which which was certainly helpful. And it was it was also helpful that um, <laughs> having the political leadership of both the city and county on board made the state legislative delegation from the region more supportive. Um, which was crucial in getting the state laws passed that were necessary to even have a referendum in the first place. This is a bit of an addendum to my previous question, but how much of a role did the support of major employers for a proposal play in the eventual approval of these mergers, if at all? Um, I think to the extent that it, it it was impactful was Really, in the funding of the campaigns um, to to for, for in favor of the consolidation, um, I think getting the, the business leaders on board um, is definitely an important component to, um, I guess, making it a acceptable topic of political conversation. And um, but as far as uh, one major employer or another, um, it didn't seem like they had a a huge role outwardly in. Trying to um, and trying to sway um, the, the electorate on this issue, um, although they mostly did support it, um, and so that was it was clear. And it was also clear that the, the major newspapers um, were ultimately supportive of the efforts that um, that did take place. And, and that was the time still when you had multiple newspapers in each city that often took divergent views on on different different topics. Um, so getting that. Those the newspapers on board, as well as the, the business leaders, which I don't think is uh, is too separate of an issue, um, was uh, was was helpful in getting it passed. Yeah, that's that is important to note that political leadership and business leadership are often not mutually exclusive. Um, <laughs> the the mergers you examined all involve efforts stretching back to the 1950s and 1960s. Nashville started down the path in 51 and consolidated in 63. Indianapolis timeline runs from like 65 to 70. Louisville, which only merged under 
in 2003, actually started working toward that end, dating back to 56. Uh, Indianapolis, which had the most condensed timeline, that stemmed really primarily from a political power move. But the more democratic approaches took longer. Does that tell regions who may consider pursuing a consolidation to expect a protracted and difficult process, especially if it's going to involve voter buy-in? Um, I think that if if the expectation is that this 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 is a topic that you can throw out there, try to get a little political support and push it through in a couple of years, um, I think that that is that's unlikely. Um, although I think that part of the reason that these efforts may have failed in the past, um, partly was uh, particularly in Nashville's case, there was um, a kind of a. a there was there was a lot of ego involved in believing that well we're the political leadership and this is what people are going to do and we're just going to make it happen um, and they didn't spend as much time in their early in the early efforts um, g- going beyond the the most active civic organizations in the chambers of commerce and those groups um, to really and and then it became much more successful when they got into the door to door grassroots campaigning um, aspect of it um, and I think Louisville saw some of that although. Um, I believe also they were the failed efforts in the eighties, which led led to a program that they refer to as the Compact, where um, the city and county, even though they didn't merge, um, created a, a, a business tax that was distributed um, per worker back to wherever they actually lived, even if they worked in one one place or the other, um, as well as some consolidated planning and other or other um, governmental operations. Um, and I think that the success uh, of that program uh, also made the concept of, of a broader merger more palatable because they'd already seen it work um, to, to some extent on a smaller scale, uh, which I think is, if, if I were trying to push this in a new city, um, I think there are efforts that can be made on a smaller scale to kind of let people know that this isn't the power grab, this isn't um, just uh, only going to help the, the business lead and kind of show how um, show how this might work. Uh, there are certainly some low hanging fruit in regionalism discussions that um, could be really appealing uh, and could be easier to get through than something as really cha- dramatic and changing as merging two two entities completely. And can you give me a sense of how? often this is being considered in the country right now? Is this getting talked about in a lot of different metro areas or is it just a couple throughout the city? Uh, I'd like to give my readers and I, or readers, listeners in this case, uh, and sorry, switching platforms there, uh, as to how popular a topic this is. Sure. So this is definitely something that um, comes up, I'd say, more from time to time rather than um, often and all over the place. Um, at the moment, uh, a group in St. Louis just pushed a new uh, proposal to merge St. Louis City and County, um, which I believe separated in the 19th century. Um, and that's being um, there seems to be a lot of a lot of effort and momentum behind that. Although I think there's still some um, some of the political leaders in, the, in that area is unsure of the impacts and what that actually means. But it's definitely something that's being talked about. Um, and uh, within the last uh, in the last few years or a couple or a decade or so, um, I know uh, Pittsburgh's 
considered it. Syracuse, New York is considered it. Um, uh, Memphis went back and forth at various times in their history, although now I think they're taking a, a rather different route to uh, to reforming their government than consolidation. So um, it's definitely something that's, that's discussed. Um, and beyond these three cities, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, uh, uh, merged as well around the same era as Nashville and Minneapolis. Uh, and then there are other cities that take somewhat different approaches to regional governance. Um, Minneapolis, for example, has um, a regional tax-sharing system. Um, I don't know all the details uh, of it. I haven't dug too deeply into it, but um, just a, a different approach that's out there. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. There's seems to be some rumblings of it in Baltimore, but not really from the deciding making classes. It seems to be coming from some business leaders who are more regional minded newspaper editorials, things like that. And, but the dynamics here are so odd in that, you know, there's not that big party split between the city and especially like Baltimore County, you know, there's Democrats in control there. If you look at all the surrounding County executives, they're all Democrats. So there's that bit of synergy, but there's, there's other elements at line and whether people want to give up their own little fiefdoms to work at a larger region and whether it would benefit the outlying counties as opposed to just benefiting the city would be a big issue to overcome. Uh, speaking of that, uh, the the conclusion in the report summary argues that the Baltimore metro area is, in this quote, ripe for similar effort, end quote, to explore the idea of a merger. Uh, any particular factors uh, locally that spur that reasoning? Um, so while I was primarily brought on to look at these other cities um, versus Baltimore itself. Um, I think one of the one of the similarities that, that we've seen is um, some of the declining um, city and tax base uh, population um, has been declining over the years and everyone's I'm sure aware. Um, and there's some there's some similarities with uh, the way that uh, these uh, Baltimore and these other pre-merger cities cities um, look. Um, I think it's it's also the case that uh, I think there's a lot of lessons that go beyond simply merging um, and what that might look like, whether that's um, Baltimore City and County or um, Baltimore and um, other counties or creating combined economic development organizations or um, basically the, taking some early stage regionalization that has been discussed or attempted um, and kind of moving it in, in a more structural direction um, that might not be full merger to still allow those localities to um, maintain control over, over their specific neighborhoods or how they want their zoning or whatever they look. Uh, and it's also, I think, I think it's relevant to think about that these three mergers were really merged to pretty broadly different degrees. Uh, it took uh, Indianapolis um, 30 years before they started discussing merging their police departments, for example. Uh, and both uh, Indianapolis and uh, both uh, Louisville and Nashville um, have two separate taxing zones. There's the Urban Services District and then the broader county. Um, so there are people have different expectations of what services their government should provide. Obviously someone in downtown Baltimore is going to think is going to have different sorts of demands on government services than someone um, at the 
uh, further north in, in Baltimore County um, just for what what they actually need, the sidewalks and all of these other uh, mundane governmental things. Uh, so there's a lot of different different approaches to consolidating without necessarily fully consolidating or without um, without taking away uh, local control over the, the aspects that um, people want to hold on to. Jeff, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. A lot of good information. I appreciate you uh, sharing your report and discussing it with us. Of course. Thank you for having me on. Once again, I'm Adam Bednar. Thank you for listening to the Ground Up Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to and read all of the award-winning business, legal, and government reporting at thedailyrecord.com. You can follow me on Twitter at bmorejourno. That's B-M-O-R-E-J-O-U-R-N-O. Or like my professional Facebook page at adam.bednar. Send news tips and podcast ideas to abednar, that's B-E-D-N-A-R, at thedailyrecord.com. If you enjoyed this episode and others, please leave a top-ranking comment on iTunes or Google Play. Chat with you next week.